a beautiful hymn that we uh, just sung together, thinking of how the Lord does free us from guilt and from sin. We'll be talking more about that as we get into our passage this morning. I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at uh, verses uh, 8 to 10 this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Let's go to our Lord in prayer and just seek His help for this time this morning. Our Lord God, we uh, rejoice in God our Savior. We rejoice in You. And as we've just sung, Lord God, You are the one who can free us, free us from guilt of sin and the stain of sin, can free us from the power of sin And totally cleanse us, Lord God, to make us acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Lord God, help us this morning to understand the passage that you have placed before us. Help us to hear you, and not the voice of a mere man, but the voice of God as we study the scripture together. It's for the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen. I'm going to ask you this morning this question. What is your relationship with sin? And what do you say about your sin? Oh, not the sin of the culture, not your neighbor's sin, your spouse's sin, your parents' sin, your children's sin, but you. Bring it home. What do you say about your sin? Are you in denial of your sin? Are you deceived about your sin? How would you even know? Are you confused about your own relationship with sin? Many evangelicals today do not have a biblical understanding of sin and and the true believer's relationship with sin. Now when I use the term evangelical, I'm using it kind of in the broad sense. Anybody that would claim to be an evangelical, that is someone who claims the gospel. Evangelical comes from the word evangel, the good news. So we're not talking about mainstream Say mainstream liberal Christianity, if you even call it Christianity. The liberal denominations would not be included as evangelicals. But what do evangelicals think about sin and the relationships to sin today? Ligonier Ministries operates an outreach website called thestateoftheology.com. I encourage you to go peruse that and, and take a look at that. It's called thestateoftheology.com. And it provides glimpses into how evangelicals think. And the term evangelical is a very broad tent today. So uh, just take it for that. It's a very broad tent doctrinally. But nonetheless, there are some surprising results found in people's answers. For example, the website highlights that, quote, although evangelicals believe that Jesus died on the cross for for their salvation, many do not fully understand the gravity of sin, unquote. And for substantiation of this, of this conclusion, the website points to the responses received to this statement. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. So the way the survey worked is the, they sent out these statements and just asked people to agree with them or disagree. So you could strongly disagree. You could somewhat disagree. You could be undecided. You don't know. 
or you could somewhat agree or strongly disagree. So there's basically five answers that, uh, that were possible. So to the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature, receives some surprising results. To this statement, 25% agreed somewhat, while another 28% agreed strongly. Keep in mind, this is evangelicals. Okay, this is not, these are not people who would claim to be pagans. These are not people who are in the, kind of like in the, in the uh, liberal Protestant denominations who don't know the Bible because they're not taught the Bible. These are evangelicals who would claim to read their Bibles and who would be, could claim to attend churches where the Bible is taught. So a total of 52%, that's a majority, 52% surveyed believe that most people are good by nature. If that's the state of theology today, with evangelicals, we're in major trouble. What about regarding the holiness of God? Regarding the holiness of God, people were asked to respond to this statement. Quote, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation, unquote. How would you answer that question? Would you strongly agree? Somewhat agree. You don't know somewhat disagree or strongly disagree. The website reports that an alarming 69% of people disagree with that statement. Again, I'll read it again. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 69% of evangelicals disagree with that statement that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And on top of that, I'd say that of that 69%, 58% of that strongly disagree. They don't somewhat disagree. They strongly disagree with that statement. Beloved, that's a perfect storm for experiencing the judgment of God. When when you think that you are somewhat good by nature, at the same time thinking that even the smallest imperfection of sin doesn't deserve eternal damnation, that's a perfect storm for the judgment of God. And and the Apostle John doesn't want his readers, which in this case is you and me, for application, to be deceived about either one of these truths. He wants us to fully comprehend that there is, that, that where we stand with sin. To the person who doesn't think that, that sin deserves eternal damnation, John says this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Because there is no darkness at all in God, he must, jar, he must judge the darkness in his creation. That, that can't be left unjudged. Even one small dot of darkness must be judged by God. Even one person, even a person with one sin, one dark spot, if that's all we had is just one little sin, of course we have a whole lot more than that. None of us just have one. But even if we just had one God would be just to judge us and unjust if he doesn't. He wants us, John wants us, God wants us not to be confused about sin and our relationship to sin. And this morning, John's going to help us to understand the benefits of confessing our sin and the tragedy of denying our sin or covering our sin or trivializing our sin. But before we go further, let's read 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. 
If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. In these verses, John presents the truth that fellowship with God demands confession of sin. We say that again. John provides us with the truth that fellowship with God demands confession of sin. And, and any denial of sin makes any true fellowship with God impossible. If we deny our sins, our fellowship cannot be with God, for we walk in the darkness. Well, let's dig into the truths that are found here, that fellowship with God demands confession of sin. First, John wants us to see this truth, that persistent denial of your sin is proof that you walk in the darkness. Persistent denial of your sin is proof that you walk in the darkness. Now, remember that this passage of Scripture, verses 8 to 10, uh, are continuing the same theme of which John has been writing, the same topic, it's the same paragraph, in fact, Uh, of what John has been talking. John gave us this message in verse 5. He says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In in verses 8 through 10, John is just filling out another implication, another ramification of that truth that God uh, is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Also keep in mind that John is writing to help provide clarity on the issue of assurance of salvation, of the assurance of fellowship with God. And he does so by providing true markers of those who have been saved, true markers of those who reside um, in the realm of light, as well as the true markers of those who reside in the realm of darkness. And if you possess the marker that John highlights, that you have good reason to be assured of your salvation or vice versa. He provides these as somewhat like tests that uh, we are to consider and apply to ourselves. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, says this. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. That's a command. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And in 1 John, verses 8 to 10, provides us one of those tests. And that is this. It's a doctrinal test. What do you think about your own sin? Do you deny that sin is in you and corrupts you? Or do you confess your sin? Now, we'll, we'll deal with, the, with these denials. Um, first, we'll deal with the denial of sin, which, we'll see, which we see in verses 8 and 10. And then we'll deal with the confession of sin in verse 9. Keep in mind that those who deny their sin are, are the fakers. And the, and the confessors are the forgiven. There's the fakers and the forgiven. Now I say fakers, remember that those who would claim fellowship with God aren't like the openly pagan. These are the outwardly religious. These are the people that say they read their Bible and maybe even do. These are the people that attend uh, church services on somewhat on a very, um, we would say, religious basis. Every time the doors are open, they might be there. These are people like the Pharisees and Sadducees who appear to be very religious So, let's look at this denial of sin. 
Look at verse 8 with me. John begins with a phrase that we have seen before, with the phrase, if we say. Notice that, remember, verse 6, if we say. Um, verse, and then verse on, uh, sorry, if we say that we have fellowship with him. So there's that if we say, there's that conditional, conditional phrase. Verse 8, if we say. And then verse 10, if we say. We're going to see that. This, this is similar um, to the way John begins his conditional and hypothetical situation, his hypothetical statement that he is putting out there and making. Notice that he includes himself. He says we, if we. He's not, he's not just talking to his audience. He's saying we. And the significance of this is it shows the universality of the principle which John is providing here. It's true even for the apostles. If we say, and, but if we say what? It's introducing a claim. If we say what? If we say we have no sin. And here we see the first denial of sin that we're going to look at this morning. If we say we have no sin. What does it mean to have no sin? Before we look at the negative, what it means to have no sin, I want to look at the positive. What does it mean to have sin? Notice that John's stating this as something you possess. Not something you do, but something you possess. Now, Paul perhaps would say it's something like this, something that possesses you. But sin here is the noun, which, which basically means a, a sinful deed. But it can also refer to sinfulness, a, a characteristic. Sin can be defined as anything contrary to the righteous character and will of God. Right? A very simple definition of sin is that. Sin can be defined as anything contrary and righteous, uh, sorry, contrary to the righteous character and will of God. As commentator Stephen Smalley explains, to have sin is the equivalent of possessing a sinful character or disposition. So John is very carefully nuancing the way that he is wording this. We're going to see a slightly different wording when we get to verse 10. But notice what he is saying, if we have no Sin. It's the sin is in the singular, and he's talking about it as something that you possess, something you have. And, and to have something means that it's yours. When that something is an intangible like sin, it is often reveals a guiding principle in our life. This is true when you look at something negative like sin or positive like faith. Do you have faith? Is a term that we are well familiar with. We see Jesus use the phrase have faith. Uh, in Matthew 17, verses 19 to 20. The disciples had tried to cast down a demon out of someone, but could not. And the young man's uh, father brought him to Jesus and asked Jesus to, to, to command the demon to go out. And we pick up the story there, in Matthew 17, verse 19. Then the disciples, after Jesus cast out the demon, that is, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now the important part of that text for us this morning is the phrase, Have faith. If you have faith, even the size of a mustard seed, small, if you have it, if, you, if it is a guiding principle in your life is what Jesus is saying. What, is, what does it mean to have faith? Ultimately, it means to trust. If trusting God is the guiding principle of your life, 
then what Jesus says is, is that, that in your prayers, you will ask God to do things, and He will do marvelous things, things you could not even imagine possible. We see this again in Mark chapter 11, verses 20 and 22, the whole principle of having faith. Jesus had walked by a fig tree that was, had, hadn't borne any fruit, there was nothing on it to eat, and He cursed it. And later, the, the uh, disciples passed by it. So Mark chapter 11, verse 20 says, as, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, being reminded. Peter said to him, Rabbi, look at the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, have faith in God. Yeah. Right? The, the, it's an object lesson. That fig tree was an object lesson that they are to have faith in God. The Apostle Paul uses the same phrase, have faith, in Romans chapter 3, in verses 23 to 26, where Paul says these familiar words, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this term, to have faith, means to have a trusting disposition or a trusting character towards God. In a like manner, to have sin means to have a sinful disposition towards um, towards God. It's, it's a sinful disposition, a sinful way of thinking, a sinful nature. Now, in support of this, this understanding, I should point out that the claim that John makes, if we say we have no sin, in verse 8, is given in the present tense. If we say we have no sin. It's, it's not talking about the past tense. At one point, they didn't have sin. This claim is given in the present tense. This is to say this is an ongoing claim to have no sin. This claim means they don't have that abiding, corrupting principle of sin within them. It's just not a claim to some momentary sinlessness, but it's an abiding claim. It's a claim to have an abiding sinlessness in one's life. So if we say we have no sin, it's the same thing as saying we don't have an ongoing sinful disposition. In other words, this is like saying we don't have a depraved nature. Depraved nature is a term that theologians use to describe how we are born as sinners even before we can sin. So what does John tell us about this person? How does he respond to this claim? What, what, is, what is the disposition of this person who makes a claim to have no sin? Well, he gives us two results in verse 8. The first result is this. We are deceiving ourselves. And a second, which we'll look at in a moment, is the truth is not in us. The first result is that we are deceiving ourselves. Notice how this is worded in verse 8. We are deceiving ourselves. It's an active process. To deceive means to lead astray. And the way that the phrase is worded, we are deceiving ourselves, is emphatically written. And he writes it this way to emphasize the point. It's not that we are being led astray by Satan. It's not that we are being led astray by the world. It's not that we're being led astray by other sinners. We are leading ourselves astray. 
That's what he's saying. It's, it's a deliberate act. One commentator noted this, that the wording here suggests a deliberate refusal to face the facts. To deny that human nature is sinful is actively to practice self-deception. This is a deliberate act of self-deception. This is the same kind of self-deception that denies that God even exists. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tells us this. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So every single person, even the adamant atheist, knows that God exists. You can always confront them with that based on the truthfulness of Romans chapter 1. They know God exists, but they don't want to admit that God exists. Henceforth, they will be accountable for their sin and how they live. But the scriptures say they don't want to be held accountable, so they they deny that God even exists. They have to ease their conscience somehow, and so they, they darken their minds. Their foolish hearts are darkened. And as their foolish hearts darken, they justify their speculations by repeating to themselves, if not verbally, in their minds, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. And they just keep beating the mantra until that they've convinced themselves of that fact. You know, if you, uh, if you hit your finger with a hammer, it's exceedingly painful. But if you continue to hit your finger with a hammer and hit it and bludgeon it and hit it and bludgeon it, soon you will not feel anything. Everything will go dead. You just continue to hit it. And that's what, that's what these people are doing with the self-deception. They don't believe it, but they keep repeating it. They keep repeating They keep repeating And pretty soon, they're convinced. They can't feel it anymore. So... They can't feel that, that God exists anymore, so they, they believe it. But the scriptures declare to us, for example, in Psalm 14, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's God's analysis. They think they're wise, but they're really foolish. The fool knows that God exists, but he deceives himself by pretending that God does not exist, so that he continue in his sin, all the while denying his sin. So let's return to the, the, what we're talking about, this, this denial of sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. You're deceiving yourself if you say you have no sin, if you don't have a sin nature. Do you reject the idea that men and women are born with a sin nature, what theologians called a deprived nature? Do you, a depraved nature, I'm sorry. If so, know that you are deceiving yourself. You Do you believe that people are born basically good? If so, know that you are deceiving yourself. Now what does that say for 52% of the evangelicals who, who say that people are born basically good? Yes, everybody sins a little, but people are born basically good. John says in very blunt language, you are deceiving yourself. Don't be deceived. And how can John be so dogmatic about this? How can he be so dogmatic that that we're deceiving ourselves if we claim not to have a sinful nature? I mean, that's a debatable point of theology in today's churches. Many churches are just afraid to even say anything about this. 
And some come down on the wrong side of Scripture. How can John be so dogmatic? Well, he's so dogmatic because Scripture is so clear at this point. Psalm 14, which I already read part of it to you. I'll read more of it to you. Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3 says this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not even one. Not the newborn. Newborns are born in a state of corruption. They look wonderful and beautiful, but they are born as wretched as you are. There's no escape. But we look at them, and they look so innocent. And from a human standpoint, they are innocent because they haven't had time to do anything. But that changes soon. Their disposition is all about them. And that's an early manifestation of the sinful nature of babies because they want it all to be about them. Right? The world revolves around them. But the, the point here is we, we can't deny this. The scriptures are clear. Um, if, if that passage from Psalms wasn't clear enough, I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Notice that description. They become useless. The person who has uh, has not been redeemed is useless in God's eyes. Powerful, powerful words, pointed words. God says, there is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a description. So, every one of us, Every single person has a sinful nature. We have sin. And Paul even talks about sin being more than just a, a possession. He talks about it more of a, like being a, a power and an influence. So it describes this, this depraved nature. In Romans chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Right? So that points to that principle. Don't let that sin principle reign in your mortal body to obey its lusts. So the scriptures are clear. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, the redeemed or the unredeemed, you have a sinful nature. And to deny that sinful nature is to deceive yourself. That's the first consequence. The second consequence, the second truth Uh, the second result, I should say, of of denying sin is that the truth is not in us. Now, why does John mention this? Let's understand it. He He says the truth is not in us. And when he uses that phrase, he is pointing us to the message that he has received. 
And that message is revealed to us in verse 5, and that is that the truth that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. He is also pointing us to the truth mentioned in verse 7, which says that the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. To say, um, to say that the truth is not in us is to say that the gospel is not in us and that the truth of the light of God is not in us, which is essentially saying you have no fellowship with God. Stephen Smalley explains in his commentary this. He says, the fact that the truth has no place in people who say they have no sin means not merely that they are lying, but also that they do not and cannot share, as they suppose, in the reality of God, whose true nature has been revealed in Jesus as the truth. The truth of God has no place in such people, unquote. And the truth has no place in people because they have no room for Christ. Christ, who is our Savior, is described as the way, the truth, and the light. And that no one would come to the Father but through him, And if the truth of God has no place in us, then God has no place in us. And if God has no place in us, then we do not have any fellowship with Him. So the first claim is to have no sin. And John has highlighted the tragic results of believing that lie. To bring greater emphasis to his point that that fellowship with God requires confession of sin, John provides one more denial of sin, which we see in in verse 10. And, and John brings emphasis even to verse 9 by sandwiching it in, in, in such a way with verses 8 and 10, with these two ideas of denials on either side of confession. So the second denial of sin is, is a claim to be free of sinful acts. Verse 8 talks about the residing principle of sin, our sin nature, whereas verse 10 speaks of sinful acts. And again, note how John begins this. If we say, it is a claim. If we say this, then here are the results. And what is it that's going to be claimed this time? If we say we have not sinned. Notice the the change in the wording. If we say that we have not sinned. The the second denial deals with sin in a verb form, which indicates that he's thinking of individual acts of sin rather than the principle of sin in verse 8. And these, the principle and the acts go together. We, we shouldn't divide too much of a wedge between these. It's because of our nature that we perform acts of sin. The acts of sin reveal our sinful nature. So these two go together. But the verb, have not sinned, in verse 10, means to do wrong. It, this is a claim to not have done anything wrong. And it is given in the perfect tense. Now what's significant about this? The perfect tense... Uh, describes things that have been ongoing and up to the current point. Listen to Donald Burdick explain this important point. The denial, this denial to have not sinned is a claim never to have committed any sins. The perfect tense verb refers to the past and with it and with the negative, it includes all of the past time up to the latest minute. It claims that one is now in the state of never having committed sins. It is therefore a denial that one has ever sinned not merely a claim to have reached the state where one no longer commits sin, unquote. The person who makes this claim is just truly delusional. Before we are deceiving ourselves, this is just truly delusional. It's one thing to deny the sinful nature. That's something you really can't see and and see manifested without the acts of sin. But but to claim there are no acts of sin is truly uh, delusional. 
people who make this claim are guilty of redefining sin. That's the only way you can claim that you have no sin is if you redefine it. You have to redefine it. You have to downplay it. You have to, to change it. So we, we do that by using words like this. Instead of just saying, yeah, I told a lie, we say, I told a little white lie. What's a little white lie? One that we tell that we say doesn't matter. Like, God doesn't really care about that. It's just really small. But that's not true. That's the only way people can make a claim to not having sin. They can say, oh, yeah, I'm not perfect. But it's usually, it usually goes like this. I'm not perfect, but I haven't murdered anybody. You know, I'm not perfect, but I haven't robbed a bank. But, but God doesn't look at things like that. that that's not uh, the lack of sin in, in one's life. And we are really good about denying our sin. Evangelicals today are, are even guilty of this. As some would say, because it goes like this. Well, God's forgiven us. God's forgiven all of our sins. You know, that happened at the moment of our salvation. He's forgiven our sins. He's washed them away. So he doesn't even see them. All, the, all our sins, even the ones in the future, he doesn't even see them. So it's like we don't even have sin. Because God's washed them all away. He's taken care of them. So you could just, just live life how you want. You don't really have sin if you're a believer. And their argument goes on like this. In fact, some would say to confess your sin is uh, expressing doubt in the atonement of Christ. So don't confess sin. If you've asked God to forgive you once, that's, that's it. That's all you ever need to do. And just trust him. And the line goes on like that. But that's a distorted viewpoint. They make light of sin and they confuse justification and sanctification. They, include, they confuse the once-for-all forensic forgiveness that God provides with the ongoing forgiveness that is required in sanctification. They confuse the change in relationship between when a person becomes a child of God with how God interacts with his children as children. So when you become a, a believer in Christ, you become a child of God. You're no longer a child of Satan. He makes you a child of God. He makes you his child. He adopts you into his family by faith in Jesus Christ. Any sin that you have ongoing doesn't change that fact. And here's the key point. You can't unmake yourself a child of God. If God made you his child, if he transferred you into his kingdom of light... You can't undo that with your sin. You can't undo that. But you now relate to him as a father. And as an earthly father disciplines his children for their good, your heavenly father disciplines you for your own good. So don't think for a minute that God doesn't see your sin. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that your sin doesn't matter right now. Yes, your sin right now has been taken care of judicially before the throne of grace eternally. That doesn't mean God overlooks your sin right now. He wants to deal with that sin right now in the same way that you would in a child who is doing wrong. You would, you would want to correct that child. That child's sin does not change the fact that he or she is your child. But if you love that child, you will discipline and that's, an, that's a distinction that seems to be lost in, in some of these hyper-grace movements. They fail to distinguish the, 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 the atoning one-for-all forensic justification and forgiveness that God provides with the ongoing. 
So what does John say to these? He, he lists here two results as well. If we say we have not sinned, we what? He doesn't say they lie. I, I use the word they're delusional. But John doesn't say that. He goes to kind of an extreme. Listen, what does he say? We make him a liar. Whoa, whoa. That, that should, no, we, it should say, if we say we have not sinned, we make ourselves a liar. But no, it doesn't say that. We make God a liar. How many people who are religious today would stand up and say, God's a liar? Probably none. Even the Pharisees wouldn't do that. So, John is using radical language to help us understand the implications of what we're saying. If we deny that we have sinned, if, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And that hymn there refers to the Father. We make the Father. We make God a liar. Now, keep in mind that John's using hyperbole to state the obvious and to drive home a point. God's word clearly teaches that we're all guilty of committing sins against God. So this is John's thinking. God's word clearly teaches that we're all guilty of committing sins against God. But in opposition to that, if you say, if we say that we have not sinned, it's reflecting back upon the word of God and saying the word of God is not true, which ultimately means that God is not true, which ultimately means that God is a liar. And that's that's what he's trying to help people think. You may never call God a liar. You may never be so bold, and hopefully you will never will. But if you deny that you have sinned against God, that's ultimately what you're doing. The logical conclusion of our distorted thinking about sin makes God a liar. And that's an outrageous statement. It's an outrageous statement. Why? Who is the liar? Who is the father of lies? Satan, right? John 8, 44 through 45, Jesus says this, You are of your father the devil, speaking to the Jewish leaders. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And many people don't believe God when he tells them, when his word tells them that they are sinners. We need to hear that. And the world needs to hear that. But if we deny that, we are ultimately saying that God is a liar, when in fact that's a complete distortion of facts. You you have become guilty of the very type of sin that Eve fell into. Eve was tempted by Satan to consider God a liar. Eve was deceived by Satan, into thinking that Satan was telling the truth and God was the liar. That's exactly the same thing that goes on today. So at work today is this principle, that Satan does not want you to understand that God is true. He wants you to think that God's a liar, that God is somehow not true to his word, and that the scriptures are not true. But nothing farther from the truth could be said about God than he is a liar. That's like the polar opposite to the truth that that John has revealed to us in verse 5, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. No darkness means no lie. No lie means truth. So when we deny that we have sinned, we make God a liar. That's the first result. 
Do you think someone who is calling God a liar is going to have fellowship with him? No, you know that. That's where John's going. The second result of denying we have sinned is his word is not in us. So this is very similar to, the, to one of the results in verse 8 where it says his truth, the truth is not in us. Here he says his word is not in us. What's the significance of this? I think we, we can get this by looking at John 15, verse 7. Jesus says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So those who are truly the disciples of Christ are going to have this word abiding in you. So if, if the word is not in us, that is, if it doesn't abide in us, we have no fellowship with God. And this is emphasized by Jesus himself in John chapter 8, verse 37, speaking to the Jewish leaders. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Think about that. Jesus said, my word has no place in you. If God's word does not have a place in you, in your life, I'm not just talking about time here. I'm talking about you and your soul. If God's word has no place in your life, you have no fellowship with God. But but the positive is this. If the word of God is in you, you do have fellowship with him. The Pharisees are are a classic illustration of of the religious person who has no room for the word of God in them. They saw themselves as the righteous. They saw themselves as those who don't need a Savior. This is illustrated for us in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. It says, Jesus went out to notice a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. He said to them, follow me. And he left everything behind and he got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So the consequences of denying sin are tragic. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. We make God a liar, and the word of God is not in us. We make ourselves just like the Pharisees who see themselves as righteous, no need of a Savior. We convince ourselves that we don't need a Savior. We're good enough. God will accept us on our own. But, but in order to say that, we have to redefine God's holiness. We have to redefine what sin is. But those, that is just simply a lie. God will have no fellowship with us if we were like that. God has fellowship with those who are brokenhearted, who come to him knowing that they are sinners in need of forgiveness and redemption, and he promises to forgive all those who come to him in faith. You don't get to heaven, beloved, by claiming your own righteousness. You get to heaven, beloved, by pleading with the Savior to forgive your sins, running to him, knowing that you're a sinner and you need his cleansing. Well, what characterizes an outlook towards sin of everyone who is truly in the light? John deals with that next in verse 9, and that is an ongoing confession of your sin. 
An ongoing confession of your sin is proof that you have fellowship with God. Look at verse 9 with me. He he says, if we confess our sins. Okay, similar to what we've seen before, John said in verses 8 and 10, we deal with just just a claim. If we say, if we say. But notice verse 9 is something we do. It's an action. If we confess. We're not just talking about things. We're doing something here. In other words, faith is made sight by actions, good works. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to confess? To confess is the Greek word homologeo. And I mention that for this reason. Legeo means to, to speak or talk. Homo, you know. Homogenous milk. Homo, what does that mean? Basically means the same. Right? So homologeo, to confess, means to say the same thing. To say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. It, it's to agree with God, in particular about sin, since we're confessing our sins. It's to say the same thing about our sins that the Word of God says about our sins. And what is it that God says about our sins? That they are offenses before Him. And notice that John says here, our sins is personalized. We're not talking about confessing the sins of your fathers. Your father might have sinned and did sin, but you're not responsible for his or his sin or your mother's sin or ten generations ago's sin, no matter what skin color. They're responsible for their sin. You're responsible for your sin. You are called to confess your sin. If you haven't sinned, confessing it... uh, can't really help. Now, in Scripture, we often see, like, for example, Daniel confesses the sins of the nation. That's true. That viewed as a nation, you are guilty of committing such and such, like Israel was. And Daniel confesses the sinfulness of the nation because he's part of that nation. But in a, in a personal sense, he's not held responsible for the sins of the nation. He might suffer consequences of the nation, You know, if a nation goes against God, the whole nation will experience God's judgment, even those who are righteous believers. When God judges a nation, that happened to Israel many times. But but notice here, we're talking about confessing sins and confessing sins. And the tense of this verb is important. Notice that John uses sins, plural, if we confess our sins. We're talking about more than one. We're talking about more than just a principle here. We're not talking about just confessing, yes, God, I'm a sinner, and leaving it at that. This is a confession of sins and is given in the present active tense, which uh, commentators believe is what's called an iterative present. That means it's, it's not like a constant present. You're not constantly doing this. But you're iteratively doing it. You're, you're doing it in iterations. You're, you're repeating it. And it's continuing. One commentator described the significance of the iterative, present, the iterative present verb here as showing, quote, the practice of confessing after each act of sin, unquote. It's tied to the individual acts of sin. So what does it mean to confess sin? It means to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. It means to admit about our wrong deeds, what God's word says about our wrong deeds. If we confess our sins, and notice he doesn't say to whom. Some within the broad realm of Christianity would say 
Well, you've got to go confess to a priest. I would agree with this. In a sense. The great high priest. Because the context here is, is, is the forgiveness that only God can provide. Who can provide your forgiveness of sins? Man can't grant that. No man can grant that. Only God can grant that. That's why it was so shocking in Jesus' ministry when he, and instead of telling someone that they're healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and Sadducees went crazy over that. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, I'm telling you, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were quite righteous externally. And if anybody could have forgiven sins, it would have been on earth. It would have been them. Right? So don't believe that some earthly priest can forgive your sins. That's just hogwash. Even in the Old Testament, that was never true. The priest never forgave sins. He brought the atonement to the altar, and God forgave sins. In looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ. Only God can forgive sins. So who are we to confess to? To God. Now, that doesn't mean you don't confess sins to each other. If you sinned against someone else, then you have the responsibility to confess your sins to that person, to seek their forgiveness. And if your sin is very public, then you need to make your confession of sin just as public. That's, that's a general principle with repentance. If your sin is private, an argument with your wife and no one else around, then your responsibility to confess your sins is to your wife and to God, because you've sinned against two there. God's always involved. But if, if you commit adultery against your wife, and it becomes widely known throughout the whole community, then your confession needs to be as wide as the sin. Because that's how God gets glory. What do you mean, confess my adultery of the whole community? Yes, if the whole community knows about your adultery, then yes, you need to confess your sin to the whole community. That's repentance. That's bringing the ugly disease out into the open, the ugly disease of sin, so that God could cleanse. That's what it means. That's what this passage is talking about. Which is what we get read into the, the blessings of this ongoing confession. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice, there's, there's a great, kind of like, a, there's a, just a dilemma going on in this passage. You have the people who claim to be perfect, but aren't really. And then you have the people who admit they're not perfect, they're sinners, who are then made perfect, in true, in reality. Do you want to be perfect? The way is not in self-justification, it is by fleeting to Christ that your sins could be forgiven, because He is faithful. He's faithful. It points to the fact that He has promised to wash away sins to those who confess. Now, what we need to say here is that our forgiveness is never contingent upon our confession. That's true initially and, and in sanctification as well. Confession of sin is not a work that earns us the forgiveness of God. It is simply a manifestation of the work of God in our lives. Do you love God? You will confess your sin. Not because it earns you His forgiveness, but because you don't want to, to go against the things of God. 
You want your heart to be sensitive to the things of God, to cooperate with the things of God. You want to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. So the the forgiveness and this cleansing are, are founded upon the Lord's faithfulness and his righteousness. Notice that it's not the Lord overlooking things. It's the righteousness. It's the righteousness that he can provide because he's dumped all of our sins upon Christ and by faith we get Christ's righteousness. He is faithful. He is righteous to do what? To forgive us our sins. Forgive. The, the, the verb there, is, again, is in the, it's in a present tense. So this isn't just looking back at a once-for-all type of thing that I mentioned before. This forgiveness is not the, the forgiveness he provides at justification. This is the forgiveness uh, that is, is experienced in sanctification. He forgives us all our sins. He, this, the term forgive is the, is the term used to speak of removing a legal debt. When God forgives our sins, he removes them so that they no longer stand between us and God. One commentator described it as God's action, described God's action of forgiving our sins like the Creator's commanding a cloud to dissolve. You ever seen that? They're watching clouds and the wind moves it around and they're like, they're just moving. They're not just moving along the earth, they're actually changing and forming. And sometimes one of those white uh, clouds will just simply vaporize, it's gone. That's that's what the Lord does, and he does it through Christ's death uh, and sacrifice on our part and resurrection. He just doesn't cause it to vanish in itself because that would not be just, and he is righteous. But it's it's a good illustration of what the Lord does. He takes away that which was a hindrance to our fellowship with him. So he forgives our sins, and notice this, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I think Paul, I mean, uh, John uses the term unrighteousness there. He doesn't say just cleanse us from our sins. He says cleanse us from all our unrighteousness to contrast it with God who is the righteous one. God who is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Through our confession of sin, the Lord takes and cleanses us and makes us so that we don't have the stain of our sin anymore and to give us the righteousness of Christ himself. So there are these two results of continuing to confess your sin. That is, that the Lord forgives us, forgives our sins, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, I've tried to help frame this so we would understand it, but we need to make sure that we understand what we're talking about with this forgiveness. It's it's not the once-for-all forgiveness of justification, as I mentioned earlier. We also need to remember that the confession of sin doesn't earn us rights with God. Salvation is never earned. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is very clear about that. Salvation is a, is a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Never earned. And when God justifies us, he places all of our sin upon Jesus as if Jesus committed our sins. And, and it, like I said, we cannot earn our righteousness. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says this, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's a powerful verse, short but powerful. The God who justifies the ungodly. How does God justify the ungodly? That's what he does. When you 
or I or any other person calls out to him by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ takes the sins of that person upon himself. That debt that the person owes is placed upon Christ and the righteousness of Christ is transferred to that person. That's speaking of justification. So if, if you are a believer today, you have the righteousness of Christ. It's spotless. It's perfect. You can't improve upon it. That's your justification. Celebrate it. But don't forget about justification. Remember, I, I read to you early from Romans chapter 6, verses 12, verse 12, that says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If, if God wasn't concerned about ongoing sin in your life, he wouldn't have commanded that. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to obey its lust. So there's these, there's these factors going on. There is the once-for-all forgiveness that he provides us at justification. And then there is the ongoing forgiveness that he provides through the process of sanctification. And both are important. Good illustrations that help us understand uh, how God operates like this are found in Scripture. One of them is in John chapter 13. So I'm going to turn there and just read that to you. John chapter 13. This is the Lord's uh, Supper on the night in which he was betrayed. But before he was betrayed, he, he um, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking the towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you sorry. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, "Never shall you wash my feet." And Jesus answered him, "If I do, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me." Simon Peter said to him, "Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head." And Jesus said to him, "He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are excuse me, you are clean." but not all of you. Now, what is, what is going on here? We, we looked in detail at this when I taught through the Gospel of John, but just briefly summarizing it. Jesus is saying that the disciples are clean. That is, they are children of God, but he says not all of you, referring to whom? To Judas. Judas was not redeemed. Judas was not saved. So, but the other disciples were, and yet... They needed cleansing. Jesus is using the illustration of, of washing their feet as an illustration that they needed cleansing, the sanctifying cleansing of, for, through their ongoing lives. But they didn't need to be washed holy. They didn't need that because they already had that. They were already clean. We see another illustration of, of this idea that you're clean but in, in a judicial sense, once for all, but in an ongoing sense, you need to be continually cleaned. We, we see this um, in a similar way in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. I referred to this in reference earlier, but I want to read it to you. And this is in reference to talking about the Father's discipline. I'm going to begin at verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So when we sin, God brings discipline in his loving way. He brings conviction of sin. And when the conviction of sin comes, we are to confess our sins. And the Lord is faithful and just to to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sins, to help us grow in sanctification. In other words, in in the words of Hebrews, to be trained by the Lord's discipline that we would grow in righteousness. So, beloved, when John talks about, in, in uh, 1 John ver, chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, he is saying that confession of sins is a true marker of a true believer. It shows that you genuinely have fellowship with God. It is the unbeliever, albeit religious, it is the religious unbeliever, who denies his sin, who who downplays its significance. Beloved, God's word calls us to, to, to throw ourselves upon the mercy of our God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that by doing so and expressing faith in him, he promises to cleanse everyone who does that. Everyone, to forgive and to cleanse So if you have not done that, the Lord calls to you to do that today. Don't let another day go by questioning that. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. And for those of you who are saved, know that confession of sin is to be part of your life. As much as you sin, that's as much as confession of sin is supposed to be part of your life. Hear the word of the Lord and do not be deceived like so many people are today. Understand the biblical, your biblical relationship with sin. But also understand, as we read from Hebrews, that he, Christ, is the author and perfecter of faith. He is your perfecter. And your battle with sin is not an eternal one. It just seems that way right now. But it is one that Christ promises victory and will one day perfect you in glory.
So have faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we just want to rejoice in you as our Savior, that you do provide forgiveness of sins for those who don't try to hide the sin, but for those who come clean, to those who come out into light so as to be washed clean through the blood of Christ. Do your work in us today, Lord. Help us to be people who are, who are truly characterized as those who confess our sin, not as those who are perfect, not as those who deny our sin or downplay it, but of those who confess it, who say the same thing about our sin that you say. Do your work in us today for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.